last, the Arabella was right between the Spanish ships Prow to Poop and Poop to Prow. Don Miguel spoke to the trumpeter, who had mounted the quarterdeck and stood now at the Admiral's elbow. The man raised the silver bugle that was to give the signal for the broadsides of both ships. But even as he placed it to his lips, the Admiral seized his arm to arrest him. Only then he, he perceived what was so obvious, or should happen to an experienced sea fighter. He had delayed too long and Captain Blood had outmaneuvered him. In attempting to fire now upon the Englishman, the Milagrosa and her consort would be, also be firing into each other. Too late, he ordered his helmsman to put the tiller hard over and swing the ship to larboard as a preliminary to maneuvering for a less impossible position of attack. At that very moment, the Arabella seemed to explode as she swept by. Eighteen guns from each of her flanks emptied themselves at that point-blank range into the hulls of the two Spanish vessels. I love this book. I love it. Welcome to this Pink Smoke podcast. 100th episode happy 100th episode chris funderberg yeah we weren't we didn't have anything planned for it this is just purely coincidence that i think we're talking about a book that's uh i don't know this feels very appropriate as a celebratory episode i feel like sabatini and we're talking about Raphael sabatini's captain blood uh that's a book i don't know i feel like it's something my interest in swashbucklers is something i share with you and no one else that's how I feel about it. Same here. And, you know, I agree. Great choice for a hundredth episode, a celebratory book for sure. And, and it's 100 years old. We're doing this because it was first published in 1922. Yeah. So it was, it was an anniversary selection to begin with. And, uh, and then it's going to be our anniversary episode. That's a kind of harmonic convergence that only, Sabatini could love it's Sabatini-esque. The kind, it's I would it's say. the kind of trick of fate that would certainly happen to one Doctor Peter Blood. <laughs> I agree. I think this is a great uh, accidental pick, if there ever was one, because this is a. Obviously, we both love the movie, but this is one of those cases where I'd say the book is uh, uh, just one of my favorite books as well. So it's definitely something that I love talking about. It's also, it's weird. It's weird talking about with swashbuckler stuff where, you know, to say this is one of my favorite books and Captain Blood is one of my favorite movies. Maybe it might be not guilty pleasures, but like, I sort of understand like why this book isn't as good as, uh, you know, Anna Karenina, you know, or, or Jacques Le Fatalist. Like, look, I, I get it. I understand. I understand why Captain Blood, you probably shouldn't put it on the same shelf with Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and, and Citizen Kane. I, I do understand, but at the same time in my heart, I don't feel that at all. I feel such an enthusiasm and pure joy for them and just, just so engaged by them, enjoy them so much that it's uh, even as I can separate, like maybe it just, it somehow causes my taste and quality detector to just frizzle out and I don't care anymore. You know, that's not a criticism of any of this, just sort of a, a factual statement about in terms of what greatness is in some way. This is, this is a, a funny way for me to get into all of this because I feel like maybe this is my only caveat at the beginning of, look, I'm going to tell you this is the greatest book ever made and that I love this book and I love the movie and it's one of my favorite movies, but understand uh, 
you know, it's purely entertainment and joy. And maybe that's, maybe that's all you need, but, but it, there is something about this that just like, God damn, I love it beyond sense and reason. I would compare it to like a military parade, right? Where everyone is in their, their fine uniforms and just looking fantastic and, and, and very professional. And you, you look at this line of, per, you know, the soldiers perfectly marching next to one each other. And you think, wow, look at this amazing military group here this is an incredible display of soldiers and heroism and not a one of them would leap into action the way that sabatini would you know no one would be able to actually be <laughs> as skillful with the blade or in battle as sabatini or his hero captain peter blood i think that's the big difference is that you know maybe it doesn't have the scope and maybe it doesn't have like the wide-reaching deep uh, endearing themes that so many great literary classics has but it just knows what to do and it gets in there and it does it and it's so satisfying each chapter after each chapter you're just like you come to the end of it and you're like he's not going to top that and then he tops it in the very next one he just gets in there and knows what he's doing with this book and maybe there's just something where as readers and as thinkers we're trained to think less of books that are just purely satisfying that a book is as satisfying as this book um, and sort of unreal in a lot of ways, you know, that it concludes in a very uh, pat kind of way um, that we're trained to not respect that in some way. Maybe that's that, that we're trained as readers to not just accept something that's exquisitely put together and delivered and fun. Maybe it's just too much fucking fun to be considered great. And maybe that's the millstone that it has to carry around its neck is that you just, I read this book and I'm just the whole time like, oh, this is fucking awesome. Like, I just love this book, even when things are going bad. And that section you read from, it's describing a fight between military vessels. It's just rousing. It's a really rousing book. Um, I feel like we should talk a little bit about our background with Swashbucklers. We haven't talked much on the podcast about it. We did an episode on The Curse of Capistrano, which is the uh, book that um, Zorro is based on, that The Mark of Zorro is based on specifically. For its 100th anniversary as well. Yeah. Tradition. <laughs> but we haven't talked much about Swashbucklers. And we had done a podcast episode years ago now where we went on a friend of ours podcast and talked about the swashbucklers at the time the episode it wasn't like we were experts i had seen captain blood for the first time i was probably like 37 38 years old and had seen it and was just blown away by it and i was sort of blown away by the way um or taken uh, just blown away by the film by how charming it is by olivia de havilland and and errol flynn by how great the the action is by how beautifully shot it is just by how tight of a script and a plot it is all of it just worked it was just so much fun i imagine i compare it to if you showed you know uh a marvel movie to somebody who had never seen a superhero movie before if you just sat them down and showed them guardians of the galaxy or thor ragnarok to somebody who had never even heard of this genre just the the overwhelming reaction of oh this is so much fun i love this this is amazing what more could i ask for out of a movie than this and i immediately 
got into the genre and started exploring the genre, which I really, truly hadn't. A lot of the films in the genre, the biggest ones, ha- ha- don't um, carry much of any critical weight or any critical reputation anymore. And I think that speaks to my um, perhaps defensive preamble to all of this, that these films don't have amazing reputations, that the swashbucklers have really become a neglected genre. And we can talk about that as we get into it. But certainly my two favorite swashbucklers were Scaramouche and Captain Blood uh, in the films. And those are both based on books by Raphael Sabatini. So I went, and also Seahawk is great. And it's technically based on a book by Sabatini, but they throw more or less all of it away and just make up a new movie and say, hey, it's another Sabatini. Um, But it made me want to read some of the books that they're based on. And so I read Captain Blood and I read Scaramouche and really enjoyed them. But that was like the moment where I discovered swashbucklers. And it's very strange, especially for someone like me, who's such a uh, seasoned and jaded cinephile to discover something new and be caught off guard by it. And so that was really great for me. I think you came from a sort of similar position in that era, right? Like what was, what's your relationship to Captain Blood, the film and swashbucklers in general? Yeah. I mean, it's again, came late to it because, you know, you grow up obviously with everything that was influenced by this genre, right? You grow up with Indiana Jones and Star Wars and just all of the And Goonies. I remember the first time I watched, um, Adventures of Don Juan and heard the Max Steiner score and was like, holy shit, it's the score from the pirate scene in Goonies, you know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway. The Max Steiner score, the Corn Gold scores from the great swashbucklers. I mean, this is all stuff that, I mean, inspired the modern blockbuster, you know, modern Hollywood starting in the 70s with, you know, Spielberg and Lucas just, you know, wanting to imitate these films that they grew up with or saw when they were kids. And you know, that was good enough for us, obviously, because these were our films now. These are the ones that we were going to enjoy. But it's crazy what, you you know, everything you said about how neglected this genre is, considering how influential it is and continues to be. I mean, even the Marvel movies, you know, take lots of ideas from these. The main one that I think in this book, especially, you can point to is that I think it's something you said on the Wrong Real episode that we were on. Swashbucklers are, by heart, romances. You know, you yes. could do a swashbuckler without a sword i don't know why you would but you could do it without a sword in the entire thing but you need to have a love story in there and that kind of combination of uh adventure and romance is i think what really kind of made these things unique and what has kind of gone on to kind of define the genre the adventure genre that you know thing that can make it universal is to have this central sort of love story too because captain blood is really just a series of adventures rousing fun sea you know seafaring adventures that are all you know based on actual historical uh, events but the real heart of it is this love between peter blood and arabella bishop you know that's just the center of the book but anyway yeah i eventually just decided i have to go back and see some of these films you know because i knew robin hood as as well as anyone did Uh, although what never really struck me as like a, a classic great film yeah, I, just, I like it. It's fine. It's certainly better than the Kevin Costner version. But when I went back and saw Scaramouche, Captain Blood, and some of the other ones that we love, or even the Lester Three Musketeers, uh, the Gene Kelly Three Musketeers, and all these other great films, and uh, Prisoner of uh, Zenda, all these other films that are just 
never come up like you said in you know the afi list of the, the iconic american cinema even though they deserve to be there 100 they are just as as fun and they are just as well made and well acted as any of the other classics and it's really really weird that i mean if you kind of look over the decades and you can see how in the 50s they were starting to kind of fall out of fashion so that by the 70s you had swishbucklers you know comedies that were making fun of the swashbuckler movies i mean they had fallen so out so far out of the canon that everybody thought that you know the only way to actually make one was to put Cheech and Chong in there. Yeah, to and make them then, sort of parodies with George Hamilton about how swishy all of these uh, their daring do was. Yeah, and historical films in general had you know dried up at a certain point. You know, I mean, war films sort of always had a niche. Westerns always kind of had an audience, but for some reason, these tales of you know piracy and the uh, the Lesser Antilles in the West Indies, these adventure fil- these kind of adventure films just dried up by the 80s and 90s and had to become, you had to spice it up with laser guns or, uh, you know, other kind of stuff, you know, whatever else they put in, in there. They had to giant sharks. Of it. Yeah. No, I sure. don't know. I don't even know what, what happened. <laughs> um, uh, and the James Bond kind of type movies, spy movies, espionage. I mean, I guess post-World War II, you're just talking about more kind of intrigue, you know, not so much valiancy and daring do well the the mode of a blockbuster became sci-fi and even when you look at superhero movies today they're not so much about magic as they are about science fiction wrappings you know that that something uh, about them is not even about the the premise of the the superheroism they're they're basically sci-fi movies they're about the tech they're about the near future tech they're about outer space they're about spaceships they're about you know ultra powerful suits that you put on to blast your enemies and i think things that, that you hadn't seen sure yeah i think that the defining characteristic as you mentioned of swashbucklers is that they're romances but that they're historical romances and captain blood being so influential in the genre definitely sets the tone where it's built around real historical activities particularly the book and the movie are ball their inciting incident is the monmouth revolution or the monmouth rebellion where again how much of this history do you want to go into and do you want to learn for this there was a king of england at the time well, before we do go into uh, it do, should we do our uh we should do our first? yeah we should absolutely do our aperitifs i guess we don't need to go into the monmouth rebellion yet i just wanted to say that tying things to verifiable history was something that cinema used to do a lot of and that the swashbucklers in particular were always very careful they the swashbucklers are defined by blackbeard has a cameo or anne of the indies has a cameo or napoleon has a cameo in these movies and this scene oh there's the queen of spain right that that that's really definitive for the genre and when it becomes future set or sci-fi set even something like pirates of the caribbean is hard to think of as being a swashbuckler even though it's obviously a swashbuckler in some way just it's emphasis on a sci-fi-ish spectacle you know and it's and it's that high fantasy uh, spectacle that really resembles soft sci-fi and i think that's where all modern blockbusters for the past 20 years ago reside you know i think maybe if you want to go back to to the change happening around the blade era you know of everything is is sci-fi ish is high fantasy soft science fiction and 
there's no real space for what swashbucklers are in that it just it's it's somehow completely antithetical to what they are in their heart you know like you can't have wizards in your swashbuckler it makes them no longer a swashbuckler right right even something like the princess bride which you know obviously has a very specific references to old swashbuckler movies has that fantasy element or movies have a supernatural element that kind of makes them something completely different i want to say it's also maybe has something to do with the infantizing of of hollywood you know that once the marketing was very specifically geared towards younger audiences in the 80s and 90s that you just can't make toys out of pirates the way that you used to be able to sell those to kids you know that like you know, it's got to be something military and modern you know and something or something that you can change from a truck into a, a robot or whatever there has to be a science fiction element to that as well that there's just no way to kind of market historical romances to younger audiences yeah than they used to i think in in that regard you're you're right that definitely blockbusters are all trying to make the toy tie-in and the the collectible tie-ins and since they're all since Star Wars is the game changer for that, they're always trying to, even to this day, make their toys resemble Star Wars in some fundamental way. Even though Star Wars is obviously, obviously influenced by the swashbuckler genre. I think uh, the first Star Wars probably doesn't exist without swashbucklers. I think that George Lucas would be pretty quick to admit that as much as it's based on 50 sci-fi serials. I don't know about that. I feel much more Captain Blood in Star Wars than I do Buck Rogers. I really do. You know? Yeah, I mean, this is something I mentioned on the episode where we talked about swashbucklers, where before Star Wars took off and became its own giant planet of a thing, it, they were talking about it like this is a this is a science fiction take on swashbucklers. Like that was the language Lucas and the producers and everybody else would use was, you know, we're trying to bring swashbucklers into the modern movie era. So, you know, that that got abandoned as soon as Star Wars became its own thing, obviously, but the, definitely the first film, you see it all over it. I do, you know, but I do think there's a lot of the swashbuckler sense of fun and gravity. I think that there's something about Captain Blood that's a serious movie and a serious book. It's not kiddie shit in that way. And so I think that maybe why you end up with something that's just like unconscionably dreadful, like the Batman, right? Because of the seriousness of Captain Blood, because there's a weight to it, to what was imitating, you know, sort of the, that thing has grown out of the seed planted by Star Wars and Star Wars is watered and fertilized by swashbucklers, that they're not kids movies. After Star Wars, the divide between kids' movies and adults' movies gets completely eroded in some way, uh, that, that now every movie has to be for kids as well as adults. But swashbucklers occupy that area. Something like Captain Blood, you're going to see when you're five and you're going to love. But it has like an adultness and a seriousness to it that's clearly digestible for adults for when you're 30. It's not a kids' movie. And I'm hard-pressed to think of examples in the genre that are kids movies until it's been going on and sort of wearing itself out in the fifties. And it's sort of getting perceived as being kids movie stuff. Something like the Crimson Pirate is definitely kid friendly and kid movie oriented, I think, and has like uh, a sort of primary colored, fun, goofy, to it that's good that's quite winning i love the crimson pirate but definitely by the 50s you get sort of the disneyfied 
um, you know, what's the, uh, uh, the guy who's the court jester, the, uh, the, the Disney-fied Danny Kaye version of it. You know, I think that you Absolutely. do sort of get that by the fifties, but that's when it's, that's when it's running its course and getting pushed off to that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when Disney becomes, you know, the, the, the entertainment for young people, which, you know, you got to give them credit. I mean, before then, when movies didn't exist, you know, I mean, it was a, a fresh new generation, you know, seeing movies for the first time and growing up with movies for the first time, the whole idea was like, what are we going to do to shuffle the kids off, you know, just create yeah. these cheap, you know, double features that they can go to while the adults enjoy the real movie. And yeah. it wasn't until Disney came along that was like, let's start marketing to kids. And then that generation grows up and this nostalgia, this love of the things that they grew up with starts to seep into the products that they're making. And that, again, that's when the marketing department comes along and says, we need to make movies for adults who remember what they loved as kids. Yeah. And then you can market to practically everybody because it's good enough for kids. It's good enough for adults, good enough for everybody. But you're right. Captain Blood has a maturity that, you know, is, is not, you know, just simple like adventure fare for like a double feature on a Saturday matinee. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's sort of the, we're obviously talking about, you know, 120 years of cinema history as we, as we talk through this and a lot of different branches and a lot of different concepts and nothing that we're going to say, nothing about the development of film is so coherent and linear as to be reducible to the terms we're talking about uh, in some way. Uh, I just think that you can see sort of refractions and reflections in mindsets and approaches through this, through this, uh, through the, through talking about these things. Sure. But I would say that, you know, the, the main kind of things that make up a true swashbuckler, which is, you know, historical, I don't want to say accuracy exactly, but you know, the use of historical actual events, the idea of like a mature romance between the sleek characters and just sort of the, the very kind of specific ideas of adventuring and like what it means and like the kind of consequences of that are become absent at some point. Yeah. From, and from, I would say movies. the final thing that's very important to swashbucklers is a sense of right and wrong set in the explicit concept, set in the explicit context of the state, whatever that means. And that doesn't always mean that somebody has a sense of wrong, right that's in conflict with the state, although that happens plenty in them. Sometimes it can be a sense of the state is right, like the three musketeers, where the entire idea is, is this sort of unthinking support of the state, whatever it may be. Uh, and I think that that's one thing that really defines swashbucklers is they're always about government, state, uh, machinations and and manipulations and a lot of them you know there's four basic types of swashbucklers we don't need to go into that again but one of them is the three musketeers court intrigue type of swashbucklers where you have the heroes and their daring do caught up in court intrigue and that's the entire plot of it even something like adventures of don juan is a court intrigue one where Don Juan returns and he's caught up between the queen and, you know, the usurper and his press gangs, you know, that, that kind of thing. But they're very much about right and wrong. And what do we mean by right and wrong? And frequently the hero is especially because Captain Blood is so influential is about somebody who has an unflagging sense of right and doing the right thing 
that is placed in context that make it appear to be wrong or question how outsiders perceive right and wrong or question what the state means by right and wrong or what our inherited sense of morality is. And those issues are fleshed out by our hero so clearly being moral, even as he's becoming a pirate and a thief, as Arabella Bishop so cruelly says to him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's why it is such a perfect setting for this particular book and so many books like it, where the late 1600s, early 1700s in that area of the West Indies, where uh, France and England and Spain and other countries, you know, have you know the, these are constantly at war with each other or aligned together and now they're at war with this guy there's just such a, an ambiguity of uh of moral choices you know of, of right and wrong uh, you know i am rebelling against this unjust king of england or i am giving you know, have been given rights to uh privateer or to filibuster in these seas because technically <laughs> we're at war with france you know i mean these ideas that like i'm a pirate but it's been sanctioned or I'm a pirate because of the way things have led me to this life, you know, and there are all these excuses, obviously, historically, that uh, a lot of these buccaneers used at the time. And it's great to put someone like Peter Blood in the middle of this, someone who has genuinely been uh, the, the victim of an, of an injustice and feels that everything he does is justified by that, by the fact that he is uh, a, a person who's been wronged but doesn't, you know, consider how that's going to look to other people, how it's still, whether, you know, whatever circumstances led you to it, you're still, you're still a pirate and you're still supposed to be the bad guy. But the one thing that is unfaltering is his sense of right and wrong. Yes. And I think that it's explicitly with Captain Blood about the way in which history and fate sets us on a track that is beyond our control I think it's interesting in modern contexts where there's so much of an impulse to condemn everything in history and every person throughout history for sort of historical wrong think and for not having been the modern version of moral, right? That this is a very popular thing to do right now about the, you know, did you know, Benjamin, frankly, Franklin believed that, I don't know what thing, you know, that... <laughs> that Chinese people were venal, you know, like whatever, you know, sort of opinion he had. Uh, this, this book's sense of it places people in a historical context and just how fate puts you on a track that's very, very hard to do anything about. But within that track, you can operate according to a sense of morality and a sense of right and wrong while still being subject to a destiny and subject to a fate and how those are that's that's a very strong tension and a very hard difficult to resolve tension is what this book is all about is if you have no choice but through injustice to become on the wrong side of the current morality you know of whatever the current moral framework is uh if you're condemned by that moral framework or a framework that's morally condemnable in any way you know, you still have to operate by your sense of right and wrong, and you still can't operate by your sense of right and wrong. Yeah, and there we'll get into it. There are many examples that Sabatini throws out to, to specifically illustrate that Peter Blood is in the right or that, you know, the things that he's doing, you know, can be justified for this reason or that. So I think he's throughout the book making sure that he keeps track of Peter Blood's moral compass throughout the whole thing. Yes, but he does also tweak the readership's sensibilities of right and wrong, too. He sort of juices it in some very like, come on, yeah. you all hate the French, you know, kind <laughs> of ways. 
uh, that I think is uh, that's you know nice. What, you know what Spanish people are like. Yeah. Come on. He's named Lavasseur. His, his blood thirsts for the blade. Give me a break. <laughs> uh, before we lose track, let's do the aperitifs real quick so we can get into the Absolutely. The I'll, uh, I'll start here. Um, just kind of coincidentally, I had started rereading the work of John Steinbeck this year. Yeah. Uh, and trying to fill a few gaps in the holes of ones I hadn't read before. You know, I've only really read the the big famous ones like Tortilla Flat and Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden. Uh, and the very first one uh, that he wrote, the first novel I'd never read before is called Cup of Gold. And it's about young Henry Morgan traveling to the Caribbean. And, oh. uh, you know, starts with him as a young man, you know, dreaming of the waters, you know, of Jamaica and then his journey over there kind of kind of starts as one of like the kind of boys adventures, sort of like a treasure Island or a captain's courageous, but then kind of settles into more of the kind of traditional swashbuckler. And, you know, if you told me Steinbeck was not a fan of Sabatini, I wouldn't believe you. He definitely wanted to write his own sort of captain blood with this book, even though it's kind of Steinbeck, you know, you kind of got the, you kind of get overwhelmed sometimes by the prose and the writing. It's sort of an Ambrose Spears or a Raymond, um, Ray Bradbury sort of uh, uh, kind of thing where it can almost overwhelm the story sometimes. But uh, so it's not as successful as Sabatini, who is really understands how to make things economical and kind of puncture things right to the point rather than kind of taking time to talk about, you know, washing the poop deck or whatever it might be. Um, Sabatini, it should be pointed out, his language is it's florid, but it's not overwritten. Sabatini is a natural storyteller. He tells a story the way you'd want to hear it from somebody telling you a great story. So sometimes the language can be very broken, very florid, and sometimes it can be very punchy. You know, he just knows what you want to be hearing about at any given moment and tells you the thing that's interesting and moves on from it very quickly when it's no longer interesting into the next thing. Exactly. Exactly. That's that. Which I would say is is not a skill Steinbeck has. No, that's why <laughs> Cup of Gold is ultimately a failure and couldn't possibly be as good as Captain Blood. But it's it is interesting just as like to see what he was kind of toying with, you know, before he got into like the Red Pony and uh, the Pearl and things like that. You know, the sort of subject matters that he was probably better attuned to, and probably why this book is not considered by any Steinbeck fan as one of his best. And it's, but but it's, it's also, it's, it's fun. It's fun to follow Morgan and, you know, the capturing of yeah. Panama, which becomes the big set piece of the book and everything and see him kind of try his hand at a swashbuckler and fail is interesting in and of itself. You know, I just wanted to ask what year is it from? Good question. It's much, it must be like, end. he starts writing in the thirties, right? Yeah. I want to say it's early thirties. It's actually 1929 is when it came out. Okay, so, so it's like seven years seven after. Seven years after Captain Blood. So yeah. he's probably under pressure to, not pressure, but the, to sell an, a first novel. That genre is happening right then. The swashbuckling genre is, what's, is what is very popular. He's writing in the popular style too. It should also be pointed out that Captain Blood makes a lot of references to Henry Morgan and in fact is a sort of... Um, fictionalization of captain morgan's life although in the book captain morgan also exists so it's both a fictionalization (laughs) while referencing the real guy on top of it and then so it makes sense for steinbeck to do a captain morgan fictionalization as well yeah absolutely what did you pick uh for me i picked 
so Captain Blood. It's a great movie. Its score is by the great Eric Wolfgang Korngold, one of the great composers of all time, completely rousing. But the original Captain Blood, I don't love its score. I don't think it has a score that's as good as some of the classic uh, swashbucklers. So what I'm going to say to you is when you go to read this book, don't put on Captain Blood by Eric von Korngold or by Eric Korngold. What you're going to do is you're going to go get the score to King's Row by Eric Korngold and put this on and listen to King's Row while you read this book. Now, King's Row uh, is most famous for this score. It's, well, it's not most famous for what I'm going to say. I'll wait to get to what it's most famous for. It's a, like, um, I think it's like a 1944 uh, Ronald Reagan melodrama, right? It's not a, uh, it's 1942 Ronald Reagan melodrama. Uh, if it's not... It's not a swashbuckler. It's not a swashbuckling movie. It does not deserve to have this incredibly rousing score on it. It's almost puzzling that it has this amazingly rousing score on it. And because it's a fairly forgotten movie, there was a composer named John L. Williams, who you might have heard of, who notoriously, to people who know, ripped off the Star Wars theme from it. If you listen to King's Row, and you put it on for the first time, your jaw will fucking drop. It's Star Wars with like three notes changed. And it is fucking crazy. Then if you get deeper into the score, his Superman theme is taken from deeper in the score on top of it as well. So his Superman theme is ripped almost note for note out of this score. So you have one of the most influential scores of all time that you've never heard before in your life because who's seen King's Row? Nobody watches King's Row. Do not watch King's Row. I will tell you right now, (laughs) don't watch it. Just listen to the soundtrack and put it on while you're reading Captain Blood and you will feel amazing. Anytime when they describe the ship setting out, just click it back to the main fanfare on on King's Row and you will feel great. And it has nice, um, because it is based on a melodrama, it has nice like twinkly romantic interludes too. It has like nice swooning uh, romantic passages in it that I think are really effective that are great for the Arabella and uh, Peter Blood scenes together. Or even the Arabella and, and Lord Julian scenes. I think it would be nice to play over them. And I think that's what you should put on and listen to with this. And this is a score I wasn't aware of until I started um, learning more about Swashbucklers a few years ago. And it really is, it really is one of those things where I have no idea how people who want to defend John L. Williams from this accusation defend it. I think all you can do is just shrug and go, yeah, he took that. You know, he's still a great composer, but he definitely... (laughs) He definitely just lifted that straight out of another movie, that in the Superman theme. In this case, I think we can uh, we can forgive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little strange. It's a little strange because uh, to me, Korngold and Max Steiner should have the reputations that John L. Williams currently has. I feel like they should be switched where John L. Williams, I think, is seen as the towering figure in Hollywood blockbuster composing. And I think that that those guys rightfully deserve that mantle and sort of John Elliam should be seen as as a son and a, and a progeny of other artists more than a um, more than a great one in his own right. There, I said it. <laughs> well, Corn Golds is 
kind of a tragic story, you know, because he was considered, you know, a musical genius at a young age in Europe mm-hmm. and came to Hollywood and, and, you know, made money writing scores and everything. But then when he went back to Europe about 10 years later, uh, he couldn't get work because he was a Hollywood hack. Basically, he was considered everybody thought he was just, you know, like a just a showman and not like a brilliant composer the way that everyone had thought of him before he left. So he kind of died somewhat in obscurity because at the time nobody was like collecting film scores or anything or, you know, talking about people the way they talk about John Williams today. So it's doubly, you know, kind of a bummer that he doesn't get the kind of reputation that he deserves. Yeah. And I would say uh, his, just in terms of swashbucklers, his, the adventures of Robin Hood score is like the great swashbuckler score. It's either that or adventures of Don Juan, but uh, just that Robin Hood score it's just so fucking great. It's just so fucking great. But you can also see like Captain Blood itself, where I gave that the defensive preamble, Korngold's work ends up in that same category of this is obviously great is the problem that it's just too much fun to be considered truly great. And that's definitely what he was faced with, especially at a moment in music where what you have happening in, in modern Uh, in orchestral music in the 20s and 30s, where it's really going to, you know, Schoenberg and things like that. And, and, um, and that kind of very experimental orchestral music is coming into the favor the the modernism being pushed past Bartok and Stravinsky in that moment when he's making very crowd pleasing, friendly, listenable uh, classical music, I think, is doubly um, just he was doomed from that from that point on. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> it just sucks for the guy. <laughs> um, shall no, we? It doesn't suck. Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini. <laughs> this is such a great book, Johnny Krabs. Uh, should we talk a little bit about pirate history before we get into the book itself? Yes, we talk about it. Um, The two, the two big influences on this book clearly are two published histories of pirates. Right, the first one is Buccaneers of America, which is published in 1678. It was written by this guy Alexandre Exquemelin, I think is how you say his name, uh, who was a French surgeon who had served under uh, Lolonay. He had served under Henry Morgan. Uh, He ended up quitting Morgan because uh, after the sack of Panama. There was a situation where things got really dire and Morgan basically cheated the crew out of their fair share of loot, after which he moved to Amsterdam to write his book. And then he returned to serve uh, the Buccaneers during the sack of Cartagena, which comes up in Cartagena. Cartagena. What did I say? Cartagena, like you're Michael Douglas and and romancing the stone. Okay. Uh, Then he moved to Amsterdam to write his book and then returned to serve the Buccaneers during the sack of... uh, I mean, I'm self-conscious now. Cartagena? Yes, we're leaving all this Cartagena. in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so there's, a, as you mentioned already, there's a funny um, moment in the book where <laughs> Sabatini mentions uh, Exquemillion and the Chronicles of Henry uh, Morgan and basically says that they plagiarized those of Peter Blood written by Jeremy Pitt, yeah. that, uh, that basically that they are the plagiarists and not he, which is uh, obviously a hilarious in joke. 
And the other influence is a book called uh, General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates. It's a mouthful of a title. Written in the 1720s by Captain Charles Johnson, who was almost certainly Daniel Defoe. And that book basically created what is practically the myth of pirates from that point on, right? But particularly the aggrandizing of, of Blackbeard as the most awesome, vicious uh, buccaneer of them all when in fact, you know, his career lasted less than 15 months and result, resulted in scant prizes and a shockingly low number of enemy casualties. But the, basically every, every myth about piracy came from this book and, uh, and Bonnie, the, who we had mentioned, you know, Queen one, Anna one, of the Indies. One cool thing about Blackbeard though, he put yeah. it like a tar in his beard that he would light on fire so smoke would come out of his beard when he was around people. <laughs> he had a smoking beard, apparently, which is like fucking awesome. Like, go ahead and mythologize that guy. Cool if true. <laughs> that might have come from <laughs> Defoe. Who knows? I choose to believe everything I have ever read in swashbuckling fiction to be true. Just for the <laughs> record, I treat it with total credulity. I think that, you know, Judge Jeffries, he died of tuberculosis and not, uh, you know, not a kidney disease because I'm going to take Captain Blood. <laughs> and it's and it's uh, That's true. I did notice that an interesting discrepancy as well with history. <laughs> well, this book, um, so with any the... of them, they've just there's yeah. there's anachronisms and historical inaccuracies, even as they seem genuinely interested in the real history. So that's one of the fan uh fascinating things about these books is they do seem very caught up in the real history and completely beholden to the myths of the history as well yeah, at the of same course. time of course so you have those myths and then of course the other big influence clearly for sabatini is the work of dumas especially the count of monte cristo uh the wrongfully persecuted individual who rises from the ashes to become a legend you know that kind of romantic sort of narrative is the other thing that i think is clearly a big influence on captain blood yeah, without question. And um, just so the time period we're talking about is um, we're talking about these pirates. Okay, how much history do we need to get into? So basically, the time period we're talking about is very, very small. It's basically corresponds to the Restoration Era. So it's like 1660 to like 1688, which is when you have the Glorious Revolution that changes everything in England. And what pirates were... Um, is they were a mix of things, but they were mainly privateers uh, and buccaneers, which were ships that were not officially affiliated with France and England, but that would plunder Spanish ships and sometimes each other, sometimes English and French ships as well, and Dutch ships to a certain extent. They would all plunder each other um, in an unofficial capacity. They were called privateers a lot of the time where they would fly false flags and then attack the Spanish ships and try and get their treasures, attack the Spanish settlements and try and get, uh, sack them, loot them, get out of there. Um, and also a, a, an amount of escaped slaves as well, that because this is in the, um, the West Indies, right? Which is what we know as the Caribbean today, sort of Hispaniola, which is where uh, the, um, which is where Haiti and the Dominican Republic are now. You have these, um, kind that kind of area sort of along the coast of northern south america so like maracaibo cartagena uh santa marta the uh gulf of mexico parts of mexico to a certain extent and then uh 
Cuba, Hispaniola, Antilles, places like that are where these guys are all out fighting each other. Um, that's all Spanish control. The Spanish main is the mainland of North America and, and Mexico. Uh, not that Mexico isn't part of North America, but in the West Indies, you have these privateers essentially all attacking each other and looting each other. After the Glorious Revolution, the war becomes more formalized so they don't have to attack each other on under false flags. Essentially, the idea is you do these privateer attacks uh, with no flag or the, the black flag, which was the plague flag. That's why they flew it, because it was to signal that you had plague bodies on your ship so other ships would stay the fuck away from you, you know. Um, you would have them attack the Spanish ships because the Spanish empire was the big, super powerful, well-heeled well empire at that point. And so it's taking pot shots at them, but you don't want it to result in declarations of war. So you attack them and then you retreat to Tortuga or any port that's sort of under um, dubious control where uh, privateers are sort of accepted um, and, and not ratted out by the governors. Uh, in some way. Yeah, and because but, these alliances were so fragile and because these treaties changed so often, what you'd have was cases like Henry Morgan where he would get a contract from like the governor of Jamaica who would say, uh, all right, this is how much like booty you get from the raid. And this is how much you're going to have to like give to us for England or whatever. And so Morgan quickly saw a loophole in the contract was that if he attacked land settlements, if he actually attacked ports rather than ships, he would get more he would get to keep all the booty because that wasn't covered by the contract only sea booty was you know uh, covered by it so he would more often attack actual settlements than he would ships out at sea but the whole thing was sort of this, this hypocritical kind of thing of they were clearly out there to get money to get treasure to get rich and uh you know it was a, a difficult balance when you know uh privateers signed on you know or allied themselves with a specific country because then they would have to figure out how to keep the crew happy, give them enough, you know, of the, of the treasure to keep them working for them. And then, you know, based on how much they had to give back to the people who theoretically hired them, they were supposedly supposed to be working for. And if people aren't familiar with the story of, of Henry Morgan, of Captain Morgan, uh, he eventually became appointed Lieutenant Governor of Jamaica, despite being a notorious pirate and then became a plantation owner. He was a sugar cane plantation owner so he's like a wealthy plantation over and a lieutenant governor despite being a really notorious and brutal pirate an opportunistic pirate as well he was sort of known for for going after the low-hanging fruit in a very uh uh i don't want to say immoral way but just just taking the easy the the easy shots at things and was very effective in that way yeah uh, so that's the so that's what's going on in that area. Where we start the book, though, right? We meet Captain Blood, not Captain Blood, Doctor Blood. At this point, he's Doctor Peter Blood. Wait, John, uh, John, just real quick before we get into it. Yeah. Before we get into it, just to quiz and make sure you know what you're talking about. What is the difference between a corsair and a buccaneer? Is the corsair the the pirate, the one who is not? allied with the country is that the difference no i'm just busting your chops but they were they were both different words for the uh, for the type of privateers corsairs i think were generally seen to be french and the buccaneers just ah, gotcha. there's not really any difference the buccaneers the word buccaneer derives from bucon hunters right the bucon which was the jerky and jerked meats that 
people sold on the like the hunters you had hunters on the land who would hunt animals make the jerk meats and they were called bukan hunters and they would sell them to the pirates because the pirates weren't farmers and weren't able to trade with legitimate settlements so they would go and find the bukan hunters and get their stuff from them and that became the bukaneers right like the corsairs it's frenchified words of it the bukaneers is where that came from. And so that's the people who like the bukan meats, who like the jerky meats. So buccaneer essentially means jerky lover is what that means is where it comes <laughs> from. If you just love that jerk chicken, you're a buccaneer now. But there's really no difference. All of the words, privateers, pirates, corsairs, buccaneers, all of the different words that get used are- Sea dogs. Exactly, pretty much interchangeable. <laughs> uh, and and a, lot of, a lot of these people too came over to the West Indies as indentured servants. Usually they were trying to get out of like a, a sentence. Like they were criminals who would have to go to jail or if they wanted to serve like a certain amount of time as indentured servants on one of the plantations or one of these settlements uh, in Jamaica or one of the other islands, they could make that arrangement. And that's how people like Morgan and uh, Lola and other people like that came over to the West Indies in the first place. And then once their sentence was done, they were basically like free to just go off and do whatever they wanted to do. And that's why most of them ended up getting together a bunch of, you know, <laughs> criminals getting together in like a new place to, you know, get a ship and, and get out there and start pirating. Like uh, Australia. That's, you know, like a bunch Australia. of criminals yeah. getting together and forming their own country. Pretty much. Yeah. But um, other, otherwise, not, not just uh, the criminals, but, you know, enemies of the crown is how we're going to get into this story specifically because at the beginning peter blood is a physician he's living in uh somersetshire he is 32 years old and he's basically retired. You're, you're jumping over it too quick okay. what i loved most about this book and movie when i first saw it he's dr blood he's dr peter blood which yes. is even more hilarious than captain blood i was having right to it buddy i know i know but i was it's... gonna say he's basically hung up his his adventuring boots at this point because he yeah. this is something but that i have really a question in for you movie. yeah where do you rank dr blood dr butcher dr giggles what's your ranking as far as who you want to make house calls well, obviously, Peter Blood will make a house call to anybody, more so than Dr. Butcher. So, Okay, let me rank them in terms of being medical deviates. Which one is the biggest <laughs> medical deviate? Dr. Giggles. I'm sorry, it's, a, it's not even close. Dr. Butcher is a shameful medical deviate, deviant, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Peter Blood a little bit. Anyway, um, he's... So he's tendon as geraniums. He's tendon as geraniums. I'm with tendon you. tendon as geraniums. That's the thing. He's 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 had his days of adventure. That's something they don't really get into in the uh, Curtis movie. Is that Peter Blood has seen a lot of battle. He's actually fought for with the Dutch against the French, and then he joined the French against the Spanish. He spent two years in a Spanish prison. He's been all around the world. He's been to Tangiers. He speaks uh, Castilian uh, fluently. He's seen enough, you know, for three lifetimes already. By the time he's thirty-two years old, and it is basically determined to become a physician in Somersetshire. Like he has no more use for adventuring at this point, which is why when everyone else is running off to join uh, the Duke, the Duke of Monmouth for this big, re uh, big revolution that they have in mind, he's asking them, quo, quo, Scalesti Rutus, you know, whither are the wicked rush? Where are you guys going? Like, what's the big deal? He is definitely 
decided he's you know he's he's out of it he has no, has no interest in this kind of so thing so real and quick pushed back into yeah. it so explain what is the monmouth rebellion a little bit can we so, can we explain yes. so the Monmouth. so what you got is you got james scott right the duke of monmouth he's the protestant champion okay he's the illegitimate son of charles ii charles ii decides to name his brother james stewart they're both james's so it's a little confusing uh to be his successor over james scott his son and Stuart is a Catholic. And at the time in England, uh, Protestants and Catholics are very much at odds with each other. So after conspiring to murder his father and his uncle, James Scott flees into exile. Okay. And then after Charles dies, he stages this rebellion to try and take the crown back from his uncle, who's become James II. And that's known as the Monmouth Re- Rebellion, right? Um, Basically, the Monmouth troops enter England and they're creeping towards Bridgewater. And it should be pointed out the Monmouth troops are like woefully underprepared peasants that decide to go up against the, the royal yeah, army. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're a bunch of Protestants who are not soldiers. They're basically like picking up whatever weapons they got lying around the yeah. house to it's go up real... against this actual yeah army. Like yeah, it's a real army. it's a it's a real pitchforks versus cannons idea that they have, but they've also been convinced by um by James Scott that God is on their side. James Scott presents himself as like a messianic figure in a lot of ways that he's the the true Protestant who's going to reclaim the crown from the the fake Catholic phony balonies and so that all you need is God to win the battle of Sedgemoor. Don't you, John? Isn't that enough? <laughs> you know who d- doesn't buy into that? Dr. Peter Blood. Dr. Peter Blood. Despite the disgust of the all of the attractive young women in town who are like, if you were a man, you'd go join the rebels. And they sort of look at him like, you should be handsome, but instead I'm disgusted by you. And he's like, <laughs> who cares? Which is what it, which is like step one of loving Peter Blood, Dr. Yeah. Blood. The shabbiness of the, you know, Monmouth supporters is one, you know, one thing that they have going against them. The other thing is that the idea is to surprise the Royalist army, right? They really need the element of surprise. But literally, they, everyone in the country is saying to each other, hey, you got to go and join this rebellion. And because everybody knows about it, the Royalist army is just camped at Sedgemoor waiting for them, basically, just their lamps to slaughter, basically. So that's the setup. Uh, Sabatini had read an account of one Dr. Henry Pittman, who was a young physician who had no intention of getting mixed up in all this, uh, ended up taking pity on uh, wounded participants and practiced his, uh, the duty of his calling and was arrested and tried in the bloodiest seas just like Captain Blood and sent to the West Indies, right? So that was one of the main inspirations for the character. The other one, though, that I didn't know about until I actually looked this up, getting ready for this episode. I love this. Uh, there was an Irishman named Thomas Blood, who in oh. 1671 tried to steal the crown jewels, right? Yeah. And, and I can't get into it, but it's a really elaborate, hilarious kind of con con game that they play with like the family who who guard the jewels, like they become their friends. They're like, hey, your daughter should get married to my fake son and all this other stuff. But anyway, he gets <laughs> ca- he gets caught. And then under interrogation, he refuses to speak to anyone but King Charles, ends up they let him, they put him in shackles, they take him to the palace. He talks to King Charles for hours. And by the end of it, not only does he get pardoned, he gets granted titles to lands in Ireland where he's from. And after that, he becomes a welcome guest at court. So obviously a charming rogue like that has a little bit of the Captain Blood blood in him as well. So 
That's amazing. I thought that was terrific. I've never heard that story. Although it's reminding me, I was just uh, listening to a podcast about Rasputin. It's a little Rasputin-y for that, that kind of thing of everybody going, what? Why is this guy suddenly in charge of everything? Yeah. Did, did, did James have a hemophiliac son that the hemophilia <laughs> was being hidden from the general public? One of the theories is that Charles at that point was low on cash and might have orchestrated the whole heist himself. Oh, and this was just his way of like, you know, smoothing it over and getting himself out of it. But I, I prefer to think that just that Thomas Blood was just that much of like a sweet talker that he just charmed the king and became like, you know, or he got into more trouble later on. But that's another story. Um, I, I just like to it think ju- that he just- like Peter Blood was just like a rascal guy that you <laughs> couldn't resist. Yes. Um, it also just can't be overstated what a good choice of name Captain Blood is, that it's yeah. just so perfect. And when you compare it to Scaramouche, which is every bit as great a book and a movie as Captain Blood is a book and a movie, I think it's less remembered because A, naming him after the clown Scaramouche is like, what are you going to do? But Andre Moreau, it's just not Captain Blood. Just like you, Captain Blood, you are walking into history. I'm sure he sat up in bed and was like, fucking captain blood and that was it and he just knew he just knew (laughs) it was over it's curtains for you motherfuckers once i got the idea to call him captain blood dr blood and he starts off as dr blood it's too amazing but so the first yeah yeah. a huge 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 thing about this book is how much sabatini loves his hero you know from the beginning he makes you love him because he loves him so much in whose veins ran the rover blood of the Frobishers, which may account for a certain wildness that had early manifest, manifested itself in his disposition. I mean, he loves this guy. He loves and this he guy. Is, Sluggish, and... Sluggishness of decision was never a fault of bloods. He leapt where another crawled. A voice that could woo seductively and caressingly or command in such a way as to compel obedience, swarthy of tint as a gypsy. <laughs> I mean, every description of Peter Blood is just like, a, a poem he looks he looks awesome too every time he's described in his black outfit in the spanish style with the silver lace and the large red in the red sash and the large ostrich plumed hat you're just like this dude looks awesome and half the time when we're in a chapter when a character is like tied up in the brig or their ship is being boarded by a stranger he doesn't say it's captain blood he just describes his awesome suit and you're like there's my man captain blood just by more stylish than anybody else i mean that's what does it he's a self-sufficient man he's got the combined skill of a swordsman and a surgeon which you know sabatini makes a huge deal about obviously as a surgeon he's going to know the right way to kill a guy right he's like redbeard in that way he knows he knows the best way to defeat people Using and then just also their physicality against them late in the book with his appearance when we know captain blood is at his lowest point because he lets his beard get scraggly and yeah. he doesn't do the curls in his periwig all the way and you're like come on get it together peter i believe in you <laughs> shave your beard and then he like gets sprung back into action and he and he realizes he hasn't shaved and he's like ah i need to fucking shave this is shameful like that's one of the first things you Captain Blood is witty too. Captain Bloody is a really, he's a smart ass who has a great comeback for everybody, who's very ironic in his dealings, who's one step ahead of people. Uh, and he's like thoughtful um, too. He's just, he's awesome. He's completely, you love him the way Sabatini loves him, but he's just completely, completely charming. He's just designed for um, stardom. 
You know, you can just put the right actor in that role and they're going to kill it, you know? And the pairing of Errol Morris with this, Errol Morris, the pairing of Errol Flynn with this character is just so perfect too. It's just such perfect casting that when you're reading it, you can't think of anybody else. Also with Arabella. Lightning in a bottle. Yeah. But, you know, those two things, that confluence of, you know, him starting out in Hollywood and this movie getting made just, you know, that happens what? Once in a lifetime, maybe. And him having like a light indeterminate accent because he's Australian originally mixed with Peter Blood having a light Irish accent that's supposed to be sort of disappearing. But speaking perfect Castilian at the same time, I think there's just something about his indeterminate international ethnicity of of Errol Flynn that is perfect for this character too. In a way that if you tried to put, I mean, not that they would put Cary Grant in this kind of adventure story, but he's in Gunga Din. I guess they might try, or uh, or Stuart Granger. It wouldn't be the same, you know. No. Uh, or Farley Granger. It wouldn't work. I think that Errol Flynn is really just perfect for this. Just or James total. Mason. Yeah, no, it was perfect with Flynn. Yeah, and and Sabatini further, you know, uh, further puts blood, you know, kind of up in our esteem by pairing him, you know, with the most arrogant pompous fops you know who just are standing on a position and that's it you know who have who are no match for him who have in terms of education and the state yeah but they have Uh they have law and the state on their side frequently but no sense of morality whatsoever he's frequently put against people who are powerful and backed by the state plantation owners judges admirals right these are his adversaries frequently but who have no sense of right and wrong who are ruthless and cruel and stupid and selfish and venal and vain and all of these bad things you can be but because they have the moral framework of the state behind them they're seen as being the good guys even though they're clearly not the good guys and those are the people he's set against as well the first of which is judge jeffries that we mentioned the the main first section of this book concerns the uh peter blood being sold into slavery where he is after he helps uh some of the victims of the battle of sedgemore specifically one nobleman who's a, a kind of higher up within the battle he tends to his needs he comes out he's uh summoned by jeremy pitt out to this this rebel's farm and he tends to his wounds and you know the uh army shows up and arrests everyone there for rebellion to be sent to the gallows they yeah, actually that's technically the first guy who he runs up against is the, yeah. the officer of this uh squad who basically arrests him because he doesn't like him right because yeah. because he's been so thoroughly thrashed by blood yeah well what happens is he sees like we're sending everybody to the gallows right now like we're gonna go hang you from the apple trees right and peter blood's like well everybody's intended to for, if this is a christian country were intended to our day in court in a trial by our peers. And that makes the sergeant go, who the fuck are you? Because you're going to the gallows now too, essentially. Right. And they and they sort of, you know, find some bullshit charges to stick them on. They do the old, uh, hey, whose weed is this kind of thing to him? You know, like, <laughs> I just saw you pull that out of your pocket. And they take Peter Blood and put him in front of Judge Jeffries, who is a real figure this is the the book's uh cameo of a real figure from history that our hero rubs elbows with judge jeffries was a notoriously like erratic overblown 
figure, uh, cruel, um, sort of a, a loyalist to the crown at the time, which is the people that uh, the Monmouth rebels are against. Um, and he's a loyalist to James. And, and the whole courtroom scene is so beautifully depicted too. Yeah. The the crimson banners in the courtroom, the judge's scarlet robes that run like blood, you know? Yeah. It's just such a kind of nightmarish sort of visualization of that scene in the uh during the bloody assizes. And essentially all Dr. Blood wants to say is, I wasn't one of the rebels. I was doing my duty as a doctor, my Hippocratic oath to tend to the wounded, no matter who they were. If it had been a British soldier. I would have been, you know, a royal soldier. I would have been tending to their wounds. Instead, I was tending to these guys' wounds. And the judge, this alone is enough to make the judge incredulous and angry at him, where he's essentially saying, I have a right to a trial. Will you hear my story? That's enough to get the judge to condemn him. Then when he sort of has verbal parries and an appeal to true morality that he throws in the judge's face, that's enough to get him hanged. And one of the first instances of fate that works in Peter Blood's favor is that the trial is pushed back for one day. So if it had been one day earlier, he would have hit seen the gallows right away. Instead, he the king realizes that they can make a profit on the rebels and sell them into slavery, working on the sugar plantations down in the um, in the West Indies, down in Jamaica, that they can send them down there to work on the sugar game plantations. And there is one thing that I was a little confused about. He supposedly sold into chattel slavery, but then later in the book, they talk about how it's just a 10-year sentence of uh, indentured slavery, of essentially punishment slavery, which should be two different things. I don't, I don't know enough about the ins and outs of it to know if that's a mistake or if sometimes chattel slavery got used for those kind of um, imprisonment slavery sentences as well. It was my understanding that chattel slavery was for life and your children get born into it and you're essentially treated as property. These guys seem to be more like they live on a barracks. They can go out and do things, uh, particularly Dr. Blood can go around to different places. So I'm not exactly sure about this. The year is 1685, just to be clear. So three years before the Glorious Revolution, that's when the Battle of Sedgemore happens that we're set in. And since it's 1685, John, just remember that America has been founded already because it was founded in 1619. Just remember, America's existed for decades already. Don't be confused about historical accuracy in any way. <laughs> yeah. What's great is that he gets the chance to kind of describe the journey over and obviously the deplorable conditions of the slaves who are going, you know, crossing over in the ship and they're kept below deck. Uh, these completely unhygienic, you know, circumstances. And that when sickness, you know, of course, starts passing from one slave to another, Dr. Blood can step up and, you know, and help them and kind of show his kind of humanitarian side again by treating the slaves as they're on their way uh, to their fate. Going yes. The ocean. And that's another great instance of the state and morality intersecting sort of the slave master on the ship doesn't give a shit that people are dying because he doesn't care about them until he realizes, oh, I'm going to get penalized if too many of these people die. They're going to be pissed at me because we're supposed to sell them when we get here. And again, slavery, another great example of the conflict between state power and morality and what's right and what's wrong. And so he's very thankful to Peter Blood that Peter Blood's able to stave a bunch of uh, these, these slaves down below deck from dying off before they arrive to be sold to Mr. Bishop when they arrive 
at the sugarcane plantations. This is, is he, he's the main antagonist of the movie. The movie is a very good adaptation in that it, it sort of compresses a bunch of different characters into single characters and makes the conflicts more straight ahead. He's not really the main antagonist of this book. The guy who buys the, the rebels and puts them all into slavery. He's just, uh, is he the least likable? He seems like the biggest shithead, but he doesn't really get his comeuppance in the book. Well, he does at the end, sure. The book and the movie end pretty much the same way with him finding out that blood has taken over his job as the governor, right? But that he's not going to be put to death for betraying the crown. He avoids right. death like three times. It's basically <laughs> the Waka Waka ending is you're going to marry my niece. Oh, I know I beat some of you to death. Exactly. Where he should be strung up from the yard arm. I'm with Wolverstone on this one. I'm with Wolverstone a lot in this book. But it's it's funny, I should mention this kind of plays into what you were just saying too about kind of the dramatic license taken here when, you know, people were sold to slavery or into indentured servitude into the West Indies. There wasn't usually an auction involved in it. You know, obviously in the movie, they make a big deal about the auction because later on, the way they're going to kind of re- recast Arabella's role later on in the uh, film, kind of brilliantly in the script, is that he will then auction to to win her, you know, to, yeah. to become, she becomes his property at that point. But It's the most that romantic that movie practice. ever made where the leads buy each other as slaves. That's <laughs> what I've had to say about Arguably. But um <laughs> But yeah, auction, auction, it usually was the thing that was set up in advance. You know, you pay a certain amount and you get a certain amount of people and that was it. You know, there wasn't a kind of secondary auction once you arrive on the island or anything like that. So that's what I think Sabatini kind of throwing that in there for dramatic purposes. Yes. And it's, and, and I think also, you know, how well can Sabatini research these things at the time? I think a lot of it is just operating according to the popular imagination by 1922, people would have known how slave auctions in the continental United States worked and assume that something similar happened in uh, the Caribbean in this era, which is not the case at all. They would have just been shipped over wholesale, like you said, in the deal made beforehand. Uh, In both books, Arabella, um, the daughter, Bishop, or Arabella, the bishop's niece, is the one who sort of plucks uh, Peter Blood out Bishop doesn't want to buy him. And she's like, I like the look of that one. Uh, let's let's buy him and bring him to us rather than the really cruel plantation. So both times he's sort of saved by, and both times it's implied she sees him and she gets a lady boner for him that she's just like, look at those blue eyes. Look at this. Now there is a man, you know, kind of reaction to him. Arabella's t- great too. I love how she's constantly uh, defined in this book or described in this book as, being uh people kind of overlooking her qualities because she has this kind of like rambunctious little sisterness about her yeah know, so she has she's... a forthright boyishness that constantly yeah. is catching dudes off guard <laughs> i love that you know especially later on when you know we meet lord julian who hasn't even considered her romantically but then his impression of her changes by Peter, but he sees Peter Blood's impression of her. And he's like, he held, holds Blood in such high esteem that he's like, oh, he finds her attractive? Well, shit, maybe I'm into her too. <laughs> I also like how utterly unafraid she is when they're being like attacked by the French and, and that kind of thing. And he's, and, and the book's essentially like, look, he's not a coward, 
but they're on a ship getting shot up with nothing but a mile of water below them. And, and, uh, and his reaction to her being, uh, you know, I guess I'm not afraid because she's not afraid. Can we go down below deck real quick? I'm not. <laughs> and the book makes clear to be like, he's not a coward. He's actually a, a, ends up being a perfectly admirable character in some ways, although he gets looped in with Bishop as well uh, later in the book. Um, but essentially what happens is Peter Blood is working on the plantation and his news of him being a talented doctor from saving the slaves on the drive comes over, spreads, and he becomes the, the governor who is a um, perpetually sick sort of foppish dandy. He becomes the the, the governor's right-hand man and has allowed a bunch of um, He's got the gout. allowances to help him, right? And so how... Dr. Blood becomes Captain Blood is set in motion by, and I love this detail, uh, that the other doctors on the island begin to hate Dr. Blood because he's a really good doctor and they kind of suck. So everybody who's anybody wants to see Dr. Blood and not them. So they come to him and they're like, hey, as your brothers in medicine, we'd really like to help you escape slavery. (laughs) So we're going to set you up with a boat. We're going to set you up with this asshole nettle. Jesus Christ, Nettle. Was there anyone more designed to be played by Timothy (laughs) Spall than Nettle? Perfect casting. Perfect casting. That's 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 probably my biggest disappointment in terms of the differences between the book and the movie is that in the movie, I'm sure that they just wanted to make blood seem that much more, you know, uh, clever and kind of manipulative. Yeah, to, to be the one who presents to them, hey, if you really want to get weird at me, you should help me escape but I love in the book that they're the ones who concoct this scheme to like get rid of them. Just like, be like, don't you want to do, did you ever think about escaping? Wouldn't you like to do that? So they're going to hook them up with a ship and a few of the Monmouth rebels, Wolverstone, Hagglethorpe and Jeremy Pitt. And Pitt is important because he's the only uh, navigator that they have and they're going to get them a ship and they're going to get them out of town. The plans go terribly because of fucking Nettle, fucking Nettle, this fucking guy. Just a great detail, a great historical detail, though, that, you know, on the islands, you always had to register your ships, like in the sale of a ship, which is going to go to the, you know, to those in charge. And they would be like, hey, why are you buying this ship? Where'd you get the money for the ship? And this guy, Nettle, is, you know, this infamous gambler on the island. So he never has any money. So there's immediately like this question of like, wait, how do you have money to buy a ship? And you need and then also like and then they get past that. But then he has to pay like a small fine to register the ship. And he just runs around the island like an idiot trying to find peter blood because he doesn't have everything it, it's and it's some small amount it's like 10 pounds that right. he doesn't it's have like nothing and there's a great scene where he comes up to jeremy pitt who will become peter blood's right hand man and the guy whose account of this the book is based on supposedly the guy whose account of this the book is based on supposedly uh and pitt is like digging like a drainage trench or something in town in front of a wall and that'll comes up Pitt's like, what do you think you're doing? Yeah, somebody's going to say, here. Like, somebody, yeah, like somebody's going to say, why are you talking to me about this? And what's your answer? What possible reason could we have to be talking to each other? And then Bishop shows up just then, right? And Nettles, Nettles' brilliant plan is he sees Bishop, and rather than answer that question, he turns and runs away into Takes the woods. <laughs> the only thing he could have done. And immediately they're like, okay, Pitt. Time for your lashing. Pitt gets lashed within an inch of his life. He's going to get killed. The plan goes all to shit. There's no hope left. Nothing's going to go. And then what happens to save the day, John? What happens is the Spanish uh, privateer ship attacks the town. 
and rapes all the women and loots it. What a great stroke of luck for our heroes. <laughs> I will say real quick, I love one of my, I want to keep throwing my favorite sentences out here left and right as yeah. we go along here. But uh, Jeremy Pitt thinking of escape, you know, after being reassured of escape by blood, the, he says, uh, those dull wits of pits were sharpening themselves anew upon the precious whetstone of hope. Oh, it's a great line. Can I tell <laughs> you my, my favorite line? It's at the end of the second chapter, right? Yeah. When blood has been convened, uh, possibly to death. And this is uh, this line I love. And I think the, this is the, the book in a nutshell. It came to Mr. Blood as he trudged forward under the laden apple trees on that fragrant, delicious July morning. That man, as he had long suspected, was the vilest work of God and that only a fool would set himself up as a healer of a species that was best exterminated. That's great. That's great. <laughs> obviously, obviously the whole experience, you know, in England sours blood on humanity. And even though he still, you know, follows his oath and, you know, steps up to heal people who are clearly sick and steps up to save Pitt once he's, you know, lashed within an inch of his life and everything, he has this just disdain for the way the world is run that kind of, you know, uh, justifies, you know, the kind of path that he's going to choose to take. Although the, the attack on the town by the, the Spanish is one of the, is probably the first instance where Sabatini sets him apart from like the kind of deviancy and criminality of most of the pirates that we kind of think yeah. about historically because he's disgusted by it. You know, he sees what's happening and he wants nothing to do with that. You know, that's not going to be the kind of pirate he's going to end up being at all. Um, and in terrorizing fact, one of the most... and sacking a town and just terrorizing this the uh, the population yeah one of the most important scenes in the book in terms of his romance with arabella is one of her friends is down in town and she's about to be set upon by a spanish soldier who's clearly going to do his worst to her and peter blood saves her kills the soldier brings her back to arabella's house they get away on horseback to avoid being really, you know, having horrible things happen to him in this in this uh, sacking of the town, and it's a really harrowing scene, and it and blood does seem really heroic and has the moment to sort of shine and say that what everybody's doing this is disgusting, and regardless of what the circumstances are, I'm going to act according to my moral sense of the world rather than what's most advantageous for me, and so they through Peter Blood gets the rebels together and they come up with a plan and they seize the Spanish ship. Essentially, they ca catch the skeleton crew that's on it off guard and take the ship while all the others are celebrating having taken the town, put down the military and they get on it. And then as the uh, Spanish soldiers are coming back in their rowboats, he just blasts the shit out of them in the water, kills all those fucking guys. <laughs> and uh and takes their leader don espinoza and his son aboard as hostages and then bishop and the governor so excited that someone has saved the city bishop goes out to the boat to see who's on there and he's going to get his ransom back supposedly the fifty thousand pieces of eight pieces of eight being the currency of the time uh back and is shocked to find he doesn't even recognize them he gets on the boat and he's like i don't recognize these soldiers who are these guys and it slowly dawns on them oh shit these are my slaves that i have been branding on their face with an ft when they try and run away for what is it feckless traitor i can't even remember what it is but what what the branding is for on their face that i've been beating within an inch of their life that i've been working to death that i've been branding on their cheeks and foreheads 
oh, that's these guys here that I've just gotten aboard their ship. And Dr. Blood, Peter Blood, now Captain Blood in the first moment makes his first decision as captain, which is to not kill Bishop, but to just have him walk the plank and let him swim back to shore. And he does it. Why does he do it, John? Why He's does in love he... with Arabella. Yeah. You can't do that to Arabella. And he wants her he's to know, yeah, that he's not a pirate regardless of what happens. And so much of the trouble he gets into in this book are just him trying to send these cosmic messages to Arabella that he's not actually a pirate and a thief, which is what she cruelly calls him when they are brought together later on in the book. And they steal this Spanish ship. What is it called? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, uh, the Spanish ship that, ship that they steal is called uh, Cinco Lagas. The, yeah, the five the five swords, which is like the, the the stigmata, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he renames it the Arabella and everybody thinks it's a joke he's making about Bishop's daughter. They're like, good one, bud. We really stole that Arabella and we're going to use her for piracy. And he's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's and so then, romantic. The next section of the book is my favorite part that did not translate this over book to the movie. rules, John. I know we're barely into it. It's so awesome already. It's so great. But I love this next section of the book because uh, one of the things that Sabatini really brings home, because when you watch a pirate movie or you think about fictional piracy at all, you never think about like the maintenance of a ship, for example, yeah. or like the kind of things that like make you battle ready, like yeah. get, making sure that the bottom is scraped and like, you know, like yeah, everything this is... one's slowed down because it's been at sea too long. And it's too barnacly. It's too yeah. foul for that speed, as Captain Blood says at one point. Yeah. And battles are won because certain ships are well-maintained and some aren't. And that's part of like good good captaincy good you know seamanship is to understand you know how to maintain your ship and how to make it battle ready like blood does uh and, and some of the guys who he has brought on board with him who are former seamen and so therefore know their shit um but yeah in this case they're basically yay we, we escaped and now what we don't know where we're going we don't have a compass because we remember, are, Jeremy Pitt, any... the navigator, has been beaten within an inch of his right. life for talking to Nettle. He's almost dead, right? Beautifully so set don't... up. Yeah, he he is not you know, in active duty at the point. Exactly. Um, and they don't have any food on board. There's not enough food to like maintain them for more than a day or two. So right away, Blood has to make a deal with this captain who's who they've captured. They're basically saying, listen... We will spare your men's life. We will set you free on land. You just need to tell us how to get to Tortuga. No, no, no. They're going to um, Dutch Carousel at that point. Oh, okay, okay, right. At that point, yeah. that's where they're going. Uh, and he blindly leads them instead to Hispaniola, where the Span which is a Spanish port. <laughs> and it's so big, they also, they, blood is like, fuck, that must be the Spanish main. What is this huge island we're going to? Yeah, and the enemy captain too has this whole explanation when when Pitt does get revived and is like the North Star is in the wrong place, and he explains, oh, that's because you know if you went that way you'd run into this and that or whatever, and he has just immediately has this answer. But he's tricked them. He's tricked them, and the very first thing that happens is that uh, the guy's brother, Don Miguel de Espinoza, uh, shows up in his ship, and they suddenly have to come up with an idea. So what Blood does is he puts the captain across a cannon and basically tells his son. <laughs> You know, if there's a fight, he's going to be the first to die. We're going to blow the shit out of him. Like the very the first, first shot will the be The first him. shot fired will be through your dad's body. Right. So we're going to get on our little dinghy. We're going to go over to your uncle's 
big warship and I'm going to pretend to be on your side and we're essentially going to snooker these dudes. Yeah, bring some of the treasure that they've stolen, you know, with them so they can, you know, give them uh, a tribute and, you know, he will further, you know, allay suspicions. And the great thing about this is that it's like the son does what he's asked, like everything goes great, but the guy strapped across the cannon dies of fright just being just that the idea of having this thing just annihilate his body before they even leave dr blood's like hey i'm a doctor and uh he was dead before we left he was too terrified of being strapped (laughs) to a cannon yeah so this whole sequence is great and it just kind of immediately shows you know not only you know blood's resilience you know uh he pulls a he pulls a benito sereno he does. He goes he over really does. Yeah. Keeps the knife to the the razor to the guy's throat and pretends that he's still in charge. Yeah. Yeah. It's and because he's again he speaks Castilian, he can you know uh, communicate with these people and you know there's no problem there and it just kind of shows like his wiliness and how his education helps him get through this situation, uh, which is so it's just it's a fantastic sequence just in general. But he makes a lifelong enemy of Don Miguel de Espinosa and his ship, who will become the other antagonist of the book because he's yeah there's a few antagonists and and arabella yeah yeah and i'd say the third antagonist is although he has a much smaller role is lavasaur who's the pirate that peter blood hooks up with next and essentially peter blood realizes fuck i can't do anything except be a pirate there's nothing for me to do in this world and so i'm going to be a good pirate and only go after you know the hated british ships because boy do i hate fucking king james more than any goddamn thing in this world and also the spanish ships because they're rich assholes as well who raided that island and i don't like them so i'll team up here in tortuga and tortuga is like the one that has a uh, loose governor who essentially allows it to be a pirate haven he won't enforce any of the laws or international treaties and sort of allows the pirates to come in and just have free run of the island so it's the pirate haven there in tortuga which means turtle that's what Tortuga means. And uh, and these guys are definitely turtle enough for the turtle club. Yes. And he hooks up with a pretty gross pirate named Lavasaur. And they team up together. And basically this next section of the book, which we'll breeze through a little bit, is him and Lavasaur decide that they're going to uh, raid Maracaibo, which is in, uh, in Venezuela, on the coast of Venezuela, modern day Venezuela, that they're going to go down there and essentially go to this city that they realize is pretty poorly protected and just completely sack it, do this main huge raid, but they need to get like six ships and a thousand men together is their goal for it. Maybe it's 600 men that they need to get. Put a whole fleet together. Exactly. But so this next. It's worth noting too. It's it's worth noting uh, that Lavoisier is pretty obviously a surrogate for Francois Lolonet, who was a very infamous pirate, very famous for his cruelty and his torturing of prisoners. My favorite uh, little biographical detail about him is that it almost worked against him because he was his reputation as a cruel torturer who would torture men to death and never leave uh, any prisoners alive would only cause his enemies to fight harder because they knew <laughs> even if they got captured that there was no quarter and they were going to be horribly tortured by this guy. Um, Levisor, they Sabatini uh, mentions had sailed with Lolanay and uh, apparently took his uh, his woodling torture, which is when you take a knotted rope and you tie it again around a, a victim's head and you tie it until their eyes basically gets just ripped out of their skull yeah it sounds horrible it sounds like yeah. a, a garrote but put around like your forehead area to 
to destroy your eyes somehow. I'm not sure if it's you squeeze the skull so hard the eyes pop out or you squeeze it so hard it blinds you. I don't really <laughs> understand how it works. It must be the blinding one and not like a wily e. Coyote fucking torture. But who it's knows what these not. pirates... But anyway, the sacking of Maracaibo, the historical sacking of Maracaibo, which was done by 440 pirates, uh, was orchestrated by Lolone. That was his. Yeah. It was his heist. The whole, the whole thing. So. And that sequence is fucking awesome because they get there, and who's there in Maracaibo to defend the city to stop them from leaving after they sacked it? Don. Yeah, Don Miguel Espinoza <laughs> is there. And, uh, and this is a great section. This is like the book sort of builds up to this middle section there. And I don't know how in depth we need to go piece by piece through every piece of the book, but this is just really great with the strategy. This is the first like swashbuckling section of the book where it's about pirate strategies and high sea strategy and how to take a fort and cannon shots and, you know, how to sink ships and strategies for deception and a lot of the second half of the book, the later half of the book, is about rallying the men to his cause and getting everybody on board with what he's doing and convincing like the real piratey types that he meets to be like Lavasor's right-hand man to work on his side and then convincing the other people to take uh, the ones that are the rebels like Hagglethorpe and Wolverstone and Pitt, you know, keeping them on board and, and acting according to moral code. Now, it's important before they actually do this, he has his falling out with Lavasor, right? where Lavasor also has lady troubles. There's a, uh, a woman who's in love with him who uh, wants to escape and join him. And uh, essentially when she finds out what kind of guy Lavasor is, she doesn't want anything to do with him. Lavasor is again going to set upon her and rape her. And, uh, and she's the daughter of the governor of Tortuga. Yes, which is really, really bad, right? That Tortuga is like their safe haven. And Lavasor's great idea is, oh, I'll, uh, I'll ransom her brother and I'll steal her away and uh, essentially blow up our relationship with Tortuga. And so Peter Blood has to step in and save her in, in the best way, which is, you know, being a better call swordsman. Call them out on the articles. Well, first, yes. call them out on the articles because they said these very specific articles in there joining together, which state that any of who... Uh, any of whatever rank concealing any part of a prize, be it the value of no more than a peso shall be hanged at the yard. Arm. Yes. And so this ransom he's going to keep for himself. Right. And he gets Lavasor's men on his side by being like, Hey guys, it sounds like uh, you should be entitled to some of that ransom. Doesn't it? And he essentially buys out the ransom with some pearls that he's been saving up from below Lavasor and essentially Lavasor, he backs him into a rhetorical corner where Lavasor essentially has to agree to have this woman bought from him uh, that he doesn't want to do. And after he's been, you know, uh, sort of hoodwinked and turned around, he has no choice. He sets upon him with brute strength and tries to beat him in a sword fight. And that's a detail that I love where Lavasor is used to being the biggest, strongest guy and just able to shove people around and stab them to death. But Peter Blood is actually a trained swordsman and defeats him by being a better swordsman and, yeah. and sort of outdueling him and being wiry and lithe and tan and luscious. I think those are the qualities that allow him to win, right? Is he so sexy? There's just no way to kill him. He's just too slinky with this, oh, his, his black outfit in the Spanish style with the silver lace. 
yeah, it's as, as fun, obviously, as it is to watch the sword fight between Flynn and uh, Basil Rathbone in the movie. Yeah. In the book, it's over practically before it begins, right? I mean, yeah. Blood just out outmaneuvers him instantly, just fucking kills him right then and there. Yeah. And so he returns the daughter to the mayor, to the governor of Tortuga, which makes him in really good stead in Tortuga there. And even more than he was, and he's uh, like a friend of the governor now, and he's sort of rising up in the world. And then they do the Maracaibo raid, uh, and it sort of, you know, does not go super well for them. They basically barely get out of it by just the, uh, you know, the hair on top of their head. But again, some brilliant, like, maneuvering. The the actual Maracaibo incident was simply that there was the 16-gun fortress, which was thought to be impregnable, and Lolanay just figured out that they weren't guarding the land, the landward side, right? So they yeah. just basically went up the landward side and took him. But in this case, uh, Sabatini comes up with an even smarter kind of thing, which is that they parked the Arabella across, like out of gun range, you know, but within their sight. And they just use a longboat with the same couple of people going back and forth to make it look like they're all going on land. So they think, oh, they're going to attack the landward side. And they turn all the guns to face that side, expecting the raid to come from there. And at that point, the Arabella swings around and shoots its cannons at it to get away because it needs to get past it to get, you know, to get safe, to get away from the passage. So it's just a really like smart and funny uh, and suspenseful sequence in the book. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And that's after a battle at sea for them to get down the street. After he's already slammed a flaming ship into their main ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. So much action in this section. They put the grapnels on their sinking flaming ship to their main ship to drag it down and destroy it. This book is fucking awesome. Um, how in depth, because we're like an hour and 40 minutes into this already. Th this later half of the book now becomes one of the things that the movie I think does smartly is it gets Arabella and Captain Blood back together so that they're spending time with each other in the second half. They're basically on deck or near each other the whole time. The second half of this book is all about them being separate in his longing for her and wanting to be near her. And there's sort of fleeting meetings that go very poorly for him where she believes him to be a pirate until everything gets sorted out by the end, right? That's why that's another thing I love about this book is that I can have all this action and adventure and then devote an entire chapter to Captain Blood just being like, she fucking hates me. Yeah. You know, just like, just having this crisis that, you know, this woman thinks that he's just a, a thief and a pirate. And then I'm, everything I'm a he's fucking done, loser. That he, that he told himself, you know, was out of love for her. That's something that would impress her had the exact opposite effect. And she thinks he's, you know, a piece of dirt. Yeah. It just totally destroys him. It's just uh, such a good chapter. <laughs> it's just yeah. his existential angst throughout the entire thing. It's terrific. Yeah. And essentially what happens is uh, he saves her and this Lord. Uh, uh, or Julian Wade this Lord Julian Wade, Lord Julian Wade has been sent to the Caribbean by the King to enlist Peter blood. Essentially what happened with Morgan, uh, where you're such a good pirate. How about you work on our side? We'll make you an official part of the army. He's obviously going to turn it down, but after he has Arabella and Lord Julian Wade on his ship, he wants to return them to the, uh, to the uh, English colony in Jamaica. He wants to make sure they're returned safely. And the only way to do that is as the most wanted pirate in all of the West Indies to take his ship to Jamaica, which where, of course, Bishop, his sworn enemy, and Arabella's uncle is waiting for him, 
right? And he has no choice but to go in and his plan is he accepts the commission uh, knowing that Bishop is going to try and fuck him over in some way and then sort of bides his time and then escapes well, he has again. No choice because yeah. again, his ship is not battle ready when he meets uh, Bishop's fresh ships that come yeah. out to meet him. He knows there's no way that they can win. So the yeah. only thing he does is he signs the article that says, okay, I'm working for England now. Yeah, um, even though I, all of it, all of the people on the ship are the rebels who are like, that's the asshole that enslaved us. I do not fucking want to do this. And he loses right. basically all of his followers at this point, except for one ship full of men. He that's, loses it's heartbreaking because, you know, he comes up with this very clever scheme of how to get out of this and how to save everybody's life. Literally nobody yeah. dies, you know? And then immediately realizes, oh man, this is not going to fly with these guys. I really made a bad deal. And this yeah. is, you know, I mean, it's, it's over. What we, what we had is over right now. Yeah. I, just then, gotta, I can't, I can't get out of this though without, I got to throw out another one of my yeah, yeah, yeah. favorite sentences. It's such a fun sentence, right? This is after uh, uh, Espinoza takes Lord Julian and Arabella captive. And this ends up being the end of uh, the feud with Espinoza as well, when he effectively destroys both of his ships and is like, I better not be seeing you on the sea anymore. Oh, it's, this line is great. And uh, the, the, that's not the line I'm going to do, though. The actual line <laughs> I'm going to do is just when Lord Julian is uh, his captive, just listen to the sentence. So, Lord Julian advanced a step and bowed perfunctorily and rather disdainfully to that very disdainful and now dumbfounded officer. <laughs> the best, but the line is when he finally defeats Don Miguel Espinosa and he doesn't kill him, the, the Spanish admiral, he, I can't remember what the exact line is, but the line he gives him is like, so you're lu- you'll be lucky to meet me, to not meet me a third time. And in the meantime, I suggest you find a different job than being an admiral because you clearly don't know fucking anything about it is what yes. the, is, is basically what the line is. He gives him oh a great devastating find, line. I try to find the line now. I'll let you look for it for a second, but it is a, it is a, it's just a great line where he essentially is like, hey, I'm not going to kill you, but you're not any good at being a captain. So you might want to give this up and uh, throw away. Oh, here it is. I got it. I got it. I got okay. it. Uh, you are at liberty to embark in them with your men before we scuttle the ship. Yonder are the shores of Hispaniola. You should make them safely. And if you'll take my advice, sir, you'll not hunt me again. I think I'm unlucky to you. Get you home to Spain, Don Miguel, and to concerns that you understand better than this trade of the sea. <laughs> I think I am unlucky for you is such a great line. Every line is awesome in this. So good. Every, every line yes, is awesome. This is their third confrontation of the book and he's been just <laughs> completely defeated by blood at every turn. So Yeah, first he tricks him advice. with the Benito Sorino, then he sacks Maracaibo, then he scuttles his sort of the, the jewel ship of the Navy for it. Uh, the final end of the book is a, is a lot of uh, sort of well, him responded on Tortuga after. Yeah, it's a lot of machinations to get to Bishop. He gets away again, and Bishop and Wade, uh, Lord Julian Wade, who's fallen in love with Arabella and is jealous, realizes she's in love with, with Captain Blood. They go out together to hunt him, even though war is being declared and they need to be fucking defending Jamaica, not out going hunting after Captain Blood. So the Glorious Revolution happens in 1888 and Captain and and King James is deposed and a new ruler is installed, one who's uh, properly uh, Protestant and more on the side and amenable to the rebels and all of of that sort of thing. So he can go back to being a, a, a 
he can go back to being a legitimate citizen at that point. He can marry Arabella, marry Arabella, and he can accept the offer to become governor of Jamaica. And, uh, you know, uh, because obviously Bishop has ignored orders to hunt Captain Blood and he returns home to find Captain Blood is going to marry his niece and is now has the job that he used to have. And at this point, it's just the ending, which is my not my only complaint about the book, is he's sort of like, hey, nice to see you, Bishop. And that's the end of the book is like like a freeze frame on Bishop going, ah, blood, right? <laughs> When really it should be like, this guy's an incredibly cruel slaver. He should be like, Arabella, I'll give you the honors of shooting him. And she kills him. That's how I want the book to end. That she does oh, it by her own hand. It's the Princess Bride ending, oh, I right? Know, Where it's I know, like he's got to live to see his shame, to feel the shame, you know, and yeah, uh, be ridiculed by everybody, which is, is all that Bishop has in his future, obviously, is the complete disdain of everybody around him for abandoning his post and then getting thwarted once again by this pirate <laughs> captain peter blood a pirate and a thief oh a pirate and a thief you say a pirate and a thief he keeps repeating it after she says it to him to everybody to where julian is that uh, julian wade is like jesus christ that uh i really bothered him being called a pirate and a thief. <laughs> it's kind of weird that this pirate and a thief is bothered by being called a hey wait i wonder if this is about arabella in some way um, I think yeah, also I, I, Arabella I, I, is a great selection for a name. It's like no unattractive woman was ever named Arabella. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's of course, just perfect of name selections. Julian Wade, Arabella, Don Miguel de Espinosa, Lavasor, great names top to bottom in this book. They're terrific. And it is hilarious how many times he reminds the reader that uh, Lord Julian is not a coward, um, which <laughs> doesn't seem exactly uh, believable when he also says, uh, he wasn't an idiot, you know, but he was he was slowly figuring out that there was something going on with uh, Captain Blood and Arabella. <laughs> like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, I think you two got something going on here. I'm deducing that, that what you said really offended, really hurt him because he's in love with you and you're in love with him, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's also funny because because when. Julian Wade is introduced, he's presented as a little bit of a good guy character. And you get the sense that Sabatini was sort of writing as he was going, not having carefully plotted everything out in advance, because he does become a villain towards the end, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But when he's first introduced, the book's like, now you guys are all going to think this guy's a bad guy, but trust me, he's pretty chill. And then like three chapters later, it's like, nah, he's like Bishop's right-hand man. He's an asshole. Forget what I said before. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I think what he's trying to say though is that he's just as as much as Lord Julian Wade holds himself in high esteem and isn't an idiot and a coward, he's no Peter Blood, and that's just going to just ruin him. You know, the yeah. fact that he can't be as Peter Blood is, and the and the big uh, the last big set piece, the last big action moment too, we should mention that kind of leads to the uh, to the end of the book is the raid on Cartagena, right? Because they're in Tortuga yeah. and blood is you know drinking all the time he's staying on the ship like he's not even though he's gotten his crew back together you know they want to go out and do stuff and he just has no interest in being a thief of the pirate anymore he is that tortured by arabella's words so they get uh, talked into to the point where they're the thinking about killing him because he's not he's refusing to do anything they're on the verge the of mutiny and yeah these guys who've been with him yeah they they yeah they're thinking about it and then 
when finally comes the saving grace is that the French come to him and say, work for us. Like we will, you know, get you the booty that your men are looking for. You'll get the adventure, you know, but it'll be legitimate. You know, you won't be a pirate. You'll be like a sailor, a soldier for yeah. France. And that's sort of how he kind of compromised in his mind and he shaves and he's ready to go back to it, but then immediately runs into another fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah. Another pompous jerk. Who would be played by Ian Holm. I think if you know, you know, <laughs> were around when they made a Captain Blood movie because he's just this tiny little jerk. Yeah. His name is Monsieur de Riverol, right? He, yeah, Riverol. He, he's the, the self-proclaimed general of the king's armies by land and sea in America. And um, much like the historic raid on Cartagena, uh, the friend, they, you know, they go in there and then there's a whole thing about how he doesn't have any idea how to attack this this place. He doesn't understand like how the tides work and Blood is basically like you can't assault it from here because you know your men won't even get into shore. You can't attack from here because they got a fort and everything like that. And he just doesn't listen to them and they just have no luck attacking this place. And then he wakes up one morning and Blood is just attacking the fort with his with the Arabella, <laughs> just just taking that thing by himself. Um, just completely undermines him, you know, in every freaking direction and basically takes the city on his own. Um, and then like the historic uh, raid on Cartagena, the French uh, officer swindles everybody, runs off with yeah. the loot. You know, he in the real in the real one, the uh, because the French had adapted the guerre de course, which legalized privateering. They had hired all these hundreds of buccaneers to raid it with them. And then they just left them high and dry. They're supposed to give them like two million. It's not dollars. I can't remember what it is, but it's whatever. Two million bucks. They give them like 40,000. Yeah. And they're like, there you go. They're like, we need pieces more. Like, of eight pieces. Like, of sure. Eight. Let's, 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 let's go. Sure. I just left it on the ship. Let me go get it for you. And then boom, they take off and get away scot-free. Um, but I love that in this version, Peter blood is like, let's go get those assholes. And they just <laughs> jump right into their ships and take off right after them, which leads them back to Jamaica. And since the French and the England are now at war, the French are attacking and he gets a chance to redeem himself by once again, saving the town by engaging uh, with this guy who he was attacking anyway, who he's chasing <laughs> after anyway, in this really riveting, you know, uh, climax in the chapter, the last, the last fight, the last fight of the Arabella, where he has to sacrifice the ship, you know, to win the battle and loses some of his close friends. And it's just a, just a gripping, fantastic, not no surprise here, but a gripping, fantastic action set. Yeah. Piece. The way he writes the sea battles are so good. And again, it's like a storyteller. They're not, overly detailed it'll go from sort of big picture images like the buccaneers storming across the decks and streaming and giant droves to technical about they have this cannon pointed at this direction you know and this cannonball hit this part of it with incredible detail and then just sort of knowing when to go macro and when to go tight focus and how to direct your attention as a storyteller is it's 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 um, it doesn't belong to any particular school of writing thought. It belongs to a school of if somebody's telling you a really exciting story, this is how they would tell it to you, you yeah, know, yeah. how to set the perfect detail, how to make everything coherent, how to just get you on board with all of it. And make not, you understand the geography, you know, where everybody is at any given point, you know, without being overly detailed about it, without yeah, being, yeah. without being obsessively detailed about it uh, in comparison to, to even books I like, like, um, you know, like the Master and Commander books, which have a tendency to get extremely detailed about that I was going to say, like the Master and Commander books, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I love, too, the Peter Blood, who, you know, is usually so poetic and has all these things to say after the French take off with the, all the loot, you know, and leave them high and dry. He just says, we must follow, follow yeah. and punish. 
<laughs> oh man. <laughs> and you're like, I'm in. But that's also this book gives you a great sense of like who wouldn't sail for Captain Blood? Yeah. Who wouldn't want to be Dr. Peter Blood's patient? You know, who wouldn't <laughs> yeah. want who wouldn't want this life with Peter Blood? And it does have that effect of making it seem like life on the high seas would just be fucking amazing, even though we all know that it would probably be one of the worst existences so imaginable. So yeah. fucking miserable. Every single piece of it would just be awful in some way. Um, but he's just like, does this book have it all? He's just, he's charming. He's funny. It's exciting. It's romantic. And the romance is like Sabatine real. loves his hero. That's all it is. Yeah. Real hard on its sleeve, achingly, unabashedly romantic, romantic. It's not like, it is like the princess bride and like, this is not a subplot. This is the story. This is why everything is happening. Is he, an injustice befalls him. And then what happens is he falls in love. That's the story. And everything he does is sort of in the context of trying to send these coded messages to her to redeem himself in her eyes, even though he never expects to see her again. You know, it's just sort of, it's just, it's very romantic. It's very effective. Although we should mention the movie a little bit. The movie compresses all of this, you know, to essentially just has Bishop and Lavasar basically the only villains in it throughout it. And he gets reunited with her 10 minutes after leaving her they don't really spend any time apart that they yeah. get reunited and spend rest in the movie it's together nothing with the spanish nothing with the french yeah yeah it's all and i don't but, and but i don't like, think the like big really, fight is really that smartly more. yeah really smartly condensed though yeah and it's yeah. not you hear about i think you hear about maracaibo raid but you don't see that kind of stuff in it it's very smartly condensed and i would say that it does justice to the book and captures the book very very well it's very very different especially the second half it stays pretty close to the book pretty much up to them to uh, the beginnings of the, of them being slaves on the sugar cane plantation that it stays yeah. pretty close up to the point where they get the plan to leave that it's very close up until that point um reproducing a lot of the classic lines and and all of that and then after that it really compresses everything but in a way that in no way betrays it it's I, I i sort of think it might be the the best example of adapting a book in some way uh in terms of something that's not a slavish adaptation because it can't be it's the best adaptation. Uh, it's just, if adaptation is something other than reproducing something faithfully, it's one of the best adaptations, one of the smartest. Yeah, I mean, if obviously you don't have the time to have Levisor kidnap the you know governor's daughter and uh, bring her back and everything and have that whole play out the way it does and have blood pretend to leave and then return to the island, like, hey, what's going on here, guys? You know, everything like that. To have it be Arabella instead, is incredibly smart way to condense it. You know, then it puts them in a situation where she sees him kill Lavoisier, you know, because throughout the book, the thing that's keeping her from, you know, believing that he's a good man is that she's heard that yeah. he killed Lavoisier because he wanted the, 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 uh, woman. the daughter. He wanted, yeah. The, yeah, he wanted to take the woman from her, not that he was saving her. That's not until later that he says, hey, you remember when, you know, your friend was almost set upon by the, the people and I saved her? That's what I was doing here, you know? Um, but to have it just be that she sees this happen and then just thinks of him as the scoundrel and a pirate is a, is a really smart way to kind of put it to the screen in a way that we don't have to take up too much time and just kind of get right down to the action. And obviously uh, other things that work 
very well, or Basil Rathbone being terrific as Lavoisier and Ross Alexander being having such great chemistry with Errol Flynn as Jeremy Pitt, who is really kind of his Dr. Watson when you think about yeah. it, right? He's kind of the one keeping all the logs and adventures, which I, based on that, I just got to throw out another one of my favorite sentences, which is about Wolverston, the one-eyed um, uh, ally. Of Wolverston. Wolverston. There was, there was a great historian lost in Wolverstone. He had, had the great, he had the right imagination that knows just how far it is safe to stray from the truth and just how far to color it so as to change its shape for his own purposes. Uh, Wolverston, love him. I also love Kahusik. It's another great small character. He's yeah. like Lavoisier's lieutenant. He's a Breton. Yeah. And, uh, he's Real shithead. Yeah, he's the guy who you know, at first you're thinking like, oh, he's like someone who should be sailing with blood, hanging with blood, not this guy Lavoisier, but then as soon as they're in Mercabo, it's like he's the first one to be like, we got to get out of here. We got to. I gotta told you not to do this. I told you this was a dumb plan. I told he's like, Mr. I told you so. Yeah. Weak livered yeah. pirate. And uh, and blood has to has to put him in his place and humiliate him. And, you know, all, all of that kind of great stuff that you want. Um, but it's it is. And he's, you know, those kind of contrasts. Again, the book's great theme is that there's political frameworks and governmental frameworks that exist that uh, have a claim and a, a purport to be a moral framework that are just completely arbitrary. And that whether you work for the King of France or the King of England, you know, if, or, you know, evil Spain, it doesn't matter what the framework, the governmental societal framework you're placed within is, is you can either choose to be good or choose to be bad. You know what right and wrong is. And the people who are bad, it doesn't matter if Cahusek is a pirate or not. He's a shithead, you know, just yeah. as it doesn't matter if Riverol is an admiral or not, he's a shithead. Same goes for Bishop. And that Peter Blood and his men are good people, not because they're pirates or not, or not because they're pirates or not because they're soldiers in the French army, but because what they do is right. And they choose the least cruel, the most magnanimous, the most intelligent, the most fair, the most uh, romantic solutions to problems, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Another funny thing about the condensing of the movie is how it's rousing in the movie where he's like, he finds out about the ascent of William and Mary to the throne, you know, yeah. and, uh, deposing of James. And is immediately like, I am all for William and Mary, like three cheers for the great William and Mary. And you're almost like, well, you don't know. They could be just as corrupt and awful as James. You don't know that. Um, whereas in the book, obviously, it's a little bit more about uh, just, you know, kind of. I can let go of my grudge. Yeah, getting real, letting go and realizing that the best way to be with Arabella is to just, you know sink the sink the arabella you know yeah. symbolically and then just be on land with her and legitimize himself and redeem himself you know in sort of his yeah. own way take the attitude well those guys didn't enslave me so i guess i i guess i got no beef with them you know? <laughs> right. yeah exactly yeah i do like how the book it very much trades on the uh the rightful american sense that french people are inherently dislikable <laughs> that you just sort of have a Oh, that guy's French. I already don't like these assholes. It has a harder time making a case against the Spaniards and makes it a much, much more, oh, they're robbing, plundering, evil empire of the new world, you know, kind of thing that I never find quite fully convincing. I always find Don Espinosa a bit sympathetic throughout it, you know, he that is. these guys are pirates and privateers and they did kill his brother and and his and uh, and his nephew's uncle, you know, and uh, not necessarily the most villainous villain, especially 
compared to Bishop and Riverol and uh, Lavasaur. That he's yeah, he's not a swindler. He's yeah, not a hypocrite. although the book treats he's him genu- like genu- he's a genuine grudge against blood. Yes, but the book treats else. him like this is just another one of the scumbags that and he gets like humiliated the most the most times it's sort of i just i do like that the movie displaces all that on the bishop you know mm-hmm. and that bishop sort of gets all the shit that that espinoza gets in the yeah. the book yeah there is that uh, i absolutely agree with you on that um i think blood even has the line to espinoza that's something along the lines of like if our yeah if you'd won if our roles were reversed you'd be you'd be the one gloating it you know for me yeah so so, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, yeah, very good book, man. Very so good fucking book. Good. It makes me, you know, uh, I'll kind of talk about this a little bit with my dessert pairing, but like, you know, I want to read more Sabatini. His books are available, but they just, it's, it's always hard to know which other ones other than obviously this and Scaramouche. And Seahawk. The ones to Seahawk is fun. Seahawk, yeah. Although, you know, also he follows a very similar kind of, you know, uh, plot with uh, the seahawk that he does yeah well that's what i'm going to say let's go to our dessert pairings i'll do mine first how influential captain blood is and i think i already picked this fucking movie for dessert pairing but it's i had to go back to it because it's the most imitative of um of the uh of the movies that i could think of that are very clearly imitated imitative of captain blood it's the one that's really most directly um indebted to it so you have even uh 12 years later almost 11 years later frank borzage's the spanish maid right which Mm. is about a guy who's a uh, religious pilgrim who's unjustly imprisoned becomes a pirate and romances the lady sort of kidnaps her uh you know maureen o'hara one of the great swashbuckling ladies of all time leading ladies and romances her because he's actually good hearted and it's got similar sort of battles it's arranged around trying to take a fort in a channel it's just it's a carbon copy reprint of of captain blood in a lot of ways it's the mad libs refill it in you know instead of being an irish doctor he's a dutch pilgrim who's forced to become a pirate and uh, and he's charming and fun in the same way. It's it stars uh, Paul Heinrich and uh, one of his, uh, you know, rare leading roles. I don't think he's a supernatural leading man. And he's certainly no Errol Flynn in this, but it's a really fun movie. And it's really it's got a lot of cool ship models. And, you know, the stuff with him and Marina O'Hare is great where she's going to stab him and, you know, him sort of taking her in his arms instead and kissing her. And she's so overtaken. She drops the knife. You know, just great moments like that, that really are Captain Blood. These things, swashbucklers are super indebted to Captain Blood. And that's the one that's the most carbon copy printing of it. So if you like this book, you can go out and say, oh, there's a ton of movies. This genre doesn't exist without Captain Blood in a lot of ways. You know, this it's Captain Blood, uh, Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers, those are like the big load stars of the swash and Robin Hood. Those are the the load stars of the um, of the swashbuckling genre. And Spanish Main is one of the many sort of reprints of Captain Blood in a lot of ways. And I can't even remember. I just remember picking it before for something. Uh, I can't remember what I paired it with, but it's such a perfect pairing now. I think it was a half-assed pairing before, and it's a perfect pairing now. So I got it is perfect. It. Yeah, I love that movie. It's. Uh... Maureen O'Hara, Spitfire Stevens herself, obviously. Oh my like, God, she's the best. So great. I and wanted this... to pick against all flags. 
but it's just not it didn't fit well enough no yeah i'm with you that's it was a good instinct that was one of the uh the best of the new swashbucklers new to me swashbucklers when we were preparing for the previous podcast um i just fell in love with it immediately so that's a really underrated one i'm glad you picked that i can't remember what you paired with previously but uh this one is perfect obviously uh, mine is another Sabatini adaptation, a silent film from 1926, Bartley's The Magnificent, which is directed Ooh. by King Vidor. Uh, it's a terrific movie. Um, I've not read the book, but I love the movie. It's set in France in the age of light loves and lively scandals. It starts the great John Gilbert as uh, the magnificent Marquis de Bartley's, who is a notorious womanizer who accepts a bet where he wages half of his estate based on his confidence that he can woo and marry uh, Roxalind de Lavedon, who is the firebrand daughter of a rebellious lord within three months. And due to complications on his journey, he ends up switching identities with a fatally wounded man who turns out to be a wanted traitor, right? And so then the movie um, goes on from there where he has to kind of uh, dodge the people who are after this guy whose identity he's taken and also sort of uh, make Roxalind fall in love with him, even though she, you know, she, she, when she finds out that he is a, apparently this rebel against the crown, you know, she hates him. And so he has to, all gets resolved. And again, it's just a, a great narrative that revolves around this terrific romance and this very, very lush and beautiful kind of love story at the center of it. The movie was thought to be lost to history until uh, a nearly complete print of the film was found in France in 2006. So only real three is missing. The remaining film was completely restored. And so that's one of those, you know, whew, kind of moments because it's really great that we get to see this. So many of the great silent swashbucklers are lost to history. So I'm glad that this one is still around and it's got a great rousing climax uh, as you would hope, you know, in these movies that uh, John Wayne is supposedly in the crowd somewhere during that, but uh, it's a, uh, it's just, it's just a it's phenomenally so shot, beautiful movie. So Gorgeous I'm definitely going to have to, I'm definitely going to have to read the book at some point just because I'm sure it's gotta be good. You know, if it was, uh, you know, one of the ones that the, uh, that Hollywood went to first before they even uh, came to some of his other books that were later done. Like, uh, well, it came after the, the Silent Scaramouche, so they were definitely adapting him. That's one thing we didn't mention about Sabatini is that he was literally an overnight success. You know, like he'd been writing books for ten or fifteen years, and then Scaramouche like literally vaulted vaulted him up into like superstardom as a writer, like within a week. You know, like yeah. that was just such a huge hit followed by captain blood later that year that it was just like yeah, now you're the biggest so writer in the world success. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. exactly so. bardley's the magnificent is great i think there's a there's some like you know super cinephiles who have the attitude of like the silent era was working with cinematography and pure image in a way that was something was really lost when sound came in and when you look at those movies they're doing something much more interesting than sound film ever did. And I generally think that's kind of bullshit. You know, I think that that there's some interesting silent films, there's some not very good shot ones, and that, you know, that the medium has always been interesting and developing. And certainly uh, that's not a hard and fast rule. Bardley's The Magnificent is a movie that you watch and you're like, uh, maybe that's true, because it's shot beautifully, but it's all shot with very specific silent film techniques. It feels like a sure. movie that wouldn't exist in the sound era, but it looks so gorgeous and so inventive um, that it's just, it really is. You also understand if you've only seen King Vidor, sound films 
why he was a big name you know that mm-hmm. that his sound films i i tend to think are have a tendency to be empty displays of like formal style that's like overtly impressive but not that great this movie has that sort of formally impressive qualities to it while being much more loose and romantic and fun to it it's sort of it is a movie that that i was i was a little fucking blown away from you told me to see it you had seen it and we're like here's one for your list you gotta see it and i and i saw it and uh i don't know how much expectations i had but i was really fucking blown away by this one and it yeah. belongs to the the swashbuckler tradition of you know mistaken identities and sort of doubles with the Corsican brothers or Man in the Iron Mask that sort of thing. Prisoner of Zenda, it has all of that that sort of double identity that's very uh, 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 common in the genre. That's very popular. Yeah, the cocky the hero is kind of brought down to earth in kind of the Scaramouche sort of fashion. Yeah, there's a ton of standards uh, that would uh, pop up in a lot of the swashbucklers that come in this movie very and was, classic and even the dvd the restored dvd was pretty hard to find for a while it's kind of hard to find these days but it's on canopy which yeah, is another reason say, why canopy is awesome <laughs> you know yeah yeah and well worth seeking out that's an that's an excellent pick john um thank you for talking about the book with me this is a book that i'm you know you're my you're my buddy you're my brother in swashbucklers the way nobody else is this is a genre that you know, you go on film Twitter and I defy you to find anybody talking about any of these movies. It's a very, very neglected genre. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. And I sometimes wonder if it's both sense of romantic idealism and moral clarity is what makes it unpopular in the modern world. That sort of idea that love and romance is life-changing history changing that that one romance is bigger than the history of england right if that idea is unpopular and the idea of like moral clarity that there aren't always gray areas you know or that within gray areas there are moral people that are forced to operate within gray areas you know is unpopular now you know it's hard to say it really is hard to say because there's not even anything by modern standards that would be objectionable about this book i mean arabella is a fantastic female lead she's a great well-drawn character that you care about you know yeah and blood's love for her is again everything else that he does it's like a part of his moral character that you know he really wants to win her over and make her come to his side you know he does not someone who's gonna like you know try to impress her and carry her off on his shoulder he wants her to have a high opinion of him, to like see him as a, an upright moral person, you know, and that drives him throughout the entire book. That's what he, that's his ultimate goal is not to run off with loot or, you know, uh, be the greatest pirate in the West Indies. That's all just incidental stuff. What he wants is to win this woman's yeah. affection, which is such a wonderful idea. You know? when this when when her affection without even meeting her again he has no expectation of meeting her again he just wants word of his goodness to reach her and sort of be seen as good in her eyes which is such a talk about you know uh you know um non-judgmental what's the word i'm looking for unconditional love you know mm. what I mean? It's not even the condition of receiving anything in return. Do not for expect it. anything in return. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, just absolutely. so completely unconditional. I mean, there's obviously a lot of this stuff I, I, in this book that I think, 
you know, just its approach to history and, and what's happening and it's touching on slavery and particularly like Irish people being enslaved and stuff. There's obviously a section of like leftist academic thought that would have, would just love to tear this book to shreds, John. Sure. Don't, don't be sure. foolish with that, <laughs> that, that this book would get obliterated by, by anybody who wanted to, uh, to talk seriously about the nature of slavery on sugar plantations in Jamaica in 1685. I think that it would be, uh, if you wanted to tear I mean, it they're apart not presented from those as wives. good. <laughs> yeah, no, they're presented as horrible. But I would also say that the black uh, slaves are bishops enforcers. They're like secondary strongmen villains in it. They're the ones who love to do the lashings and catch the other slaves from running off and return them. And uh, I don't know enough about history to say whether that's accurate or not, but I have a feeling that might be a little fanciful that black slaves were catching white Irish slaves and returning them to the plantation. I'm not sure that sounds exactly accurate to me, but again, I'm not a historian. I will say the next book we're going to talk about with blood in the title written decades later has got much more objectionable passages about black people <laughs> than this does. Yeah. Yeah. We, we set ourselves up for a tough one with that one. I just started it and it's, uh, that's a bit of a toughie. Oh, so there's, so there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot to talk about. It's no, there's a topic. huge amount to talk about and I'm glad Marcus yeah. is going to be on the episode with us. Yeah. Um, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, you know, this is our hundredth episode. I don't think that we're particularly nostalgic or self-congratulatory people, but I've had fun talking to you every single time. You know, that these kind of episodes episode, are, right? I mean, we've, we've had nothing but great guests on the show and those are always terrific episodes, obviously, but when it's just you and me, this is what I love is talking about a great book that we both enjoy that yeah. we could talk about forever. So, yeah, it's good to have an excuse to talk to you about things, which is really all this show is, is just that I want to talk to you about art that we like, because yeah, I like hearing what you think, man. Same Thunderbird, same. All right. Uh, we still have no tag. We still have no sign off. <laughs> should our tag wait? Our uh, should our tag from now on? Uh, should our tag from now on still be? And as he had long suspected, man was the vilest work of God, and that only a fool would set himself up as a healer of a species that was best exterminated. Good night, everybody. Tend to your geraniums. <laughs> <laughs>